put him up in the front. So that he's killed. This psalm overflows with the language of sin. In verse 1, he says, Blot out my transgressions. In verse 2, he says, He speaks of mine iniquity and my sin. In verse 3, my transgressions and my sins. He groans in verse 4, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. In verse 5, he admits, I was shapen in iniquity. Then in verse 9, he speaks of my sins and mine iniquities. And finally, he asks for deliverance from blood guiltiness. In verse 14, speaking of his vile murder. Oh, he didn't pull the sword. He didn't draw the bow. But the Lord said through Nathan, it was your sword that smote him. Meaning, David, you were the one that killed him. It wasn't the archers on the wall. All they did was pull the bow. You supplied the target. One of your own fine men. Because you couldn't escape the guilt of your own sin. I'm sure all of us would like to say, well, you know, boy, that's really bad. And I read that, and I sure want to learn from it, because, boy, I'd sure hate to ever do anything like that. But let me ask you, is there a sinner here that hasn't tried to cover his sin? How many of you, every time you've sinned in your life, immediately made a clean breast of it, repented of it, forsook it, and that was it? Anybody here ever done that? Let me ask you on the other hand. How many times have you done everything you could to hide your sin and to sweep it under the rug? Try to keep anybody from ever seeing it. You wear a particular kind of face, a religious gown around other people. Even when you're lost, there were things you did and you didn't want anybody to know. Isn't that so? Oh, you might have been one of those so perverse you actually boasted about some of your grosser sins. There are always a few exceptions like that. But even then, most of us do all we can to cover what we've done. Children, you know you do, don't you? Ever been a time you did something and the first thing you did was blame your brother or blame your sister? Anybody ever done that? Sure you have. And the Bible calls that sin. That's what David was doing. And it finally led to a man's death. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I've got to find a way to cover this. David uses three different words to express the seriousness of his sins. And then finally ends with the word blood guiltiness. And then in his confession he finally says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. 
Now, what in the world does he mean by that? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his wives. He sinned against the people of Israel as their king. Other men were even killed. Uriah wasn't the only one that was killed because of his sin. If you read the passage in 2 Samuel 11, others were killed because he told Joab, get Uriah up there. Uriah had to get his men and put them in that place. And others were killed. Men that day passed into eternity not knowing that the very reason they were killed was because of another man's adultery. Extraordinary. David confesses. In other words, brethren, he not only owns his sin, but he realizes who his sin is against. Even though he sinned against those, and he did. It was a sin against them. All sin is ultimately against God. And with the power of the Spirit convicting him of his sin, he sees and knows. He, he, it's as clear in his mind as it can be. Even though I've stained and, and corrupted so many people with my sin, Lord, my sin is against you. And that's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow feels bad about what it's done, but godly sorrow understands that whatever the sin is and whoever was involved, God is the one against whom that sin was so vile, corrupt. David is manifesting sorrow after a godly sort. He's the commentary on all those other passages. Brethren, he cries out for the, uh, acknowledging the root of his sin. In verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not going psychological on us. He's not saying, Oh, it's not my fault. It was the way I was raised. That's not what he's doing, and that's not what he's saying. David says, I know why I did it. I wasn't having a bad day. I wasn't angry with my other wives. It wasn't because uh, I wasn't being treated right or my brothers, you know, my brothers were really mean to me back in that David and in that, that Goliath, that whole situation. They made fun of me while I was there. And I mean, I never got over it. And so I've been angry all these years. And so I did this. He says, Lord, I did this because from the womb I'm a sinner. There's a heart that understands. See, real repentance, real repentance comes from a heart that's changed its mind about itself. It's changed its mind about the sin and it's changed its mind about self. It's changed its mind about God. In the light of God's holiness and the piercing conviction of the Holy Spirit and the Word, He sees and acknowledges the root of His abhorrent act. From my mother's womb, I was a sinner. 
That's why I did it. You want to know if your repentance is real? You want to know if you really have repented before God? Nobody else is involved. You're the only one dealing with God. You've stopped talking about other people. Your mouth is shut about everybody else. It's you and God. And you know who the sinner is between the two of you. That's where David is. And that brings him to a plea for restoration. A plea for restoration in verse 7. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He goes on, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore, there's the word, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Perhaps nothing fills us with such guilt and self-loathing as a glimpse of the nastiness of our sins. When we just sit down and see that sin for what it is in the light of God's Word and we realize I can't blame anybody I can't look to anyone else and I see that thing and I'm filled with revulsion at how ugly it is. And that ugly thing was birthed from my heart. You see, sin, when we see the ugliness of it and the contamination of it, is a separating thing. If God is holy and we are vile, we know that he can have nothing to do with somebody like me. It's vile. How could God ever love something like me? You say, oh man, this is all... Get out of this. This is all negative stuff. I mean, you live in this kind of thing. You're going to walk around feeling bad all the time. No. Not if you go on to realize that Christ Jesus came to save that kind of person. That's what fills the heart with joy. Till you recognize that you are hopeless and lost, you will never truly flee to the Christ of Scripture. You've got no need for a Savior if you're okay. Or you might need a buddy. You might be lonely. You might just need someone to love you. But Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. And even when His people sin, they desperately sense that division that sin, sin brings. They feel their separation from their God. When a child is responding well to discipline, and they don't always do, but when they're responding well you ever had that time where you've got that precious child and you bring them and you discipline them and the minute you finish that spanking, oh, they crawl up and they hold you and they hold your neck and they could stay there all the rest of the day. Why? Because they were, they were brought to feel and to sense their separation. And they want to cleave to you. 
And David senses his filthy separation from his God. How does that happen? The power of God's Spirit and the Word. And what we do is we cleave to our God. We don't run away from Him. David's not running away. He's not going, oh, he's so bad and hateful and mean. He's just a big cosmic volcano waiting to blow up over me. No. He's like the child grasping his father's neck. He says, cleanse me. Help me. Purge me. Wash me. He wants to be restored to his God. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Godly sorrow floods out of the heart that has been made aware of its sin. If you're the kind that, uh uh-oh, I've messed up. Where can I run? Where can I hide? God's going to get me. You've missed the glory of the God who sits enthroned on high. You should fear grieving your heavenly Father. But when you sin, you should flee to your heavenly Father. This is why we can still call David a man after God's own heart. He doesn't harden down... He doesn't buckle down, hunker down in his sin and say, Ah, I'm the king. I can do what I want. No, when that blow from Nathan came, Thou art the man. He said, I've sinned. He didn't argue. He said, I've sinned. And he cried for restoration to his God. You see, if you can keep on in your sin, if you can keep running to your sin, if you keep going back to your sin and playing with it, something's desperately wrong. Because God will send the arrows of his conviction to his children any way that he wants to do it. Whose wife is that? That's your. Uh, who's, what woman is that? That's Uriah's wife. God put right in front of him. Many of you know, before you've committed certain sins that still grieve you, God put something in front of you to warn you. And you still found a way to get around it. But repentance flees back to God. It doesn't just go on in sin. When the piercing conviction of God's holy word comes home, like the child hanging from his father's neck, it drives us to him. Real repentance is a turnaround. Change of mind about sin, change of mind about self, change of mind about God. There's a plea for healing here. Hide your face from my sins and blot out. Erase from the ledger all mine iniquities. And then he says in verse 10, in a a plea for transformation, Create in me a clean heart 
What is David admitting here? I can't do it. I need a Savior. I need God. I can't do it. I can't do it. You create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. Oh, God. That's a change of mind about himself. He's not proud, is he? He's not strutting his power. He's not telling men to go and pick up women for him, is he? He says, I've got to be changed and you must change me. Have mercy, O oh God. Oh, my God, have mercy. Real repentance is rooted in the sense that there's nothing in my strength that's going to be able to fix things and make things right. My only hope is the God of heaven and earth. Well, let me press on finally to David's change of behavior. There are other things to say about his change of mind, but I trust it's clear at this point. He's changed his mind. He's changed his mind. And that change of mind is leading to a change of behavior. As I've said, he's sorrowing after a godly sort. In verses 16 and 17, it says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. What's he saying? I understand, Lord. It's not just about taking a lamb, an ox, one of the animals, cutting them, bleeding them out, and burning their bodies. That's, what, that's not what it's about. It isn't just about a ceremony where I say, oh, well, messed up. Eh, let's, get one of the, let's get one of the lambs and bring it down to the priest. He said, I see and I understand what you want. That lamb is just a symbol of a substitute dying for my sin. What you want from me is a contrite spirit. You want to see me broken over my sin. And brethren, he was. He sorrowed after a godly manner. And when he did, he cast himself utterly upon his God. Brethren, in his brokenness, in his contrite spirit, David cast himself entirely upon God. And this is what I would tell any and every sinner to do. Cast yourself upon the mercies of a forgiving God. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Do you hear that? Ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able. He is able. He is able. David cast himself entirely upon the God who reveals himself as a forgiving God. He takes his eyes off of himself and he looks alone to the only help for sinners. He doesn't look to the, to the lamb or to the ox or to the, any of the other animal bodies that are burned up upon the, 
the, the altar. He looks with a broken heart to his God. He pleads for pardon. And in every, on almost every verse, you see him casting himself upon his God. Have mercy upon me, O God. You, the one with the power, have mercy upon me according to thy loving kindness. Do you hear that? He's building his plea on the character of God. Where did he find that out? From the Holy Scriptures. The Word of God informed David that his God, Jehovah, his God, Yahweh, was a pardoning God. He revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus 34.6. The Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David's casting Himself on that God. And I set before you a gospel this morning. It's the same God. He so loves His people that He took His Holy Son and poured out all His fury and wrath for their sins upon Him and then tells you, He informs you in His Gospel, He's a willing Savior. David had a change of mind. It led to a change of action. He cast himself upon his God instead of walking around and strutting independently. He cast himself upon the promise of a God who forgives. And I say to you this morning, cast yourself on the God who is willing to forgive. Utterly dependent upon God, utterly dependent upon God's Word, utterly dependent upon God's cleansing power. That's why he says, wash me, cleanse me, purge me. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Blot out my sins. Create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away. Restore. Uphold me. Deliver me. What do you hear? A change of mind that's led to a change of action. He's now casting himself entirely upon his God, hoping entirely upon him with a final note for us here. He says in verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Instead of being one who mars and smudges the name of God as I have done, I will tell sinners about a God who forgives. True repentance is a change of mind about sin, self, God, and it leads to a change of action. David didn't go on in adultery. He didn't go on for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years saying, well, it's okay. I mean, after all, I'm, I'm one of the covenant people. When his sin was brought home, brethren, he changed his mind and followed after his God. And I say to you this morning, there's a willing Savior for 
everyone who sees his sins and will turn in childlike faith and trust him. True repentance, when either when we're coming to Christ or even when we are his children, still manifests itself the same way. It's a change of mind. It leads to a change of action. And built at the very heart of it is faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, you have set before us what true repentance looks like. David's heart was pierced by the word and he fled to his God. And I pray that every lost one here today will see his sins in the light of a holy God and flee to a God willing to forgive. And Father, I pray for your children. Father, if your children have sinned in this week or previous to that, oh, send your Spirit and speak to their hearts by your Word and draw them to thee as repentant children. Father, may they cast down their sins fleeing to Christ. Now take these truths to our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.